Church family, this has absolutely nothing to do with the sermon today, but I did something very foolish this morning. A lot of Sundays I like to get up and go for a run and just wake my mind up and uh, get going, and it's like a pregame run for a Sunday kind of thing. But so it feels great outside. It's 80, but it's also 90% humidity. And so I finished the run and I came in and we got Jesse a new car seat. And I said, I'm going to go put the new car seat in the car. Biggest mistake ever. Car seats are more complicated than anything I have ever seen. And I was a straight A student in all of the maths. So uh, public service announcement, don't try to do a car seat uh, when you need to get to church. Just save it for later. Now, now that you know that, we're going back to the book of James. And as we go there, there there's, there's two things that as, as we've walked through it so far that I've n- neglected to tell us. One is a lot of people call James the, the Proverbs of the New Testament. And a lot of that is because when you read through James, it's very direct, it's very clear, it's very simple. There's a, there's a large focus on wisdom and living a life of wisdom, just like in Proverbs. And so many will call it this. As I have been studying it and walking through it, I think it's probably more true to say not the Proverbs of the New Testament, but it is, James is really a New Testament prophetic writing. And here's what I mean by that. When, when you read a prophetic writing, it's not all about telling the future. That's an aspect of it. But what it is, is this is God's Word applied to your life in the present situation. If you have faith, this is what it ought to look like played out in your life. And that's what James is. And James does not hold back. He does not pull punches. And so I say this to say, as we walk through James, just be prepared to have your toes stepped on. And that includes me. It's because this is, this is where James is at. And as, and as we walk through, understand as, as we find that, we, we, we can either receive what James says or we can resist it because James is really going to f- highlight three themes. And we've seen two of those themes so far. We looked the first week at joy and trial. Last week, we looked at this first, uh, this first instruction and call to wisdom. And today, we move to what's really the third theme in the book, which is that between poverty and prosperity, poorness and riches, between having and having not. And it's going to be a theme that plays out, though today James will set it up in a very general manner. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them to James or grab the Bible in the pew back in front of you. If you haven't been here and you say, where's James? I'll make it real easy. Open up on the very back. You'll see Revelation. Go about six books to the left and you'll be at James. Now here's what it says, church family, James chapter 1, verse 9. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man or the rich brother is to glory in his humiliation, because like the flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed." so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. James writes, and remember who he's writing to. These are believers, uh, most likely some of the earliest Christians. They are of a Jewish background, and in coming to faith in Christ, they have uh, signed... uh, 
They have signed a, a, a statement of separation. They're not, they're not accepted by their own people, by their own families. A persecution breaks out in Jerusalem and scatters them to regions. So many of those he's writing to are, are believers who are living as refugees who are attempting to reestablish life and livelihood. Most of them would have been social outcasts, family outcasts. They have no political power, little political favor, and many of them are going to be poor. And as we find out through the book, they're not just poor, but many of them are facing situations where they are deserving, they are doing work and deserve rightful pay that they are being denied. They're not only facing uh, the reality of, of being considered poor economically, but they are being treated unjustly. Now, we also know from the rest of James that we'll see in the days to come, there were some in this body of believers who were not poor, who, who were, in fact, rich, who had an aspect of wealth. And, and James writes to both of them, and, and both of them face a different kind of trial, and both of them are given a certain command. It says, but the brother, and that's how we know these are believers, you never find in the New Testament the term brother or, or sister applied to someone who's not in Christ. So, but the brother or sister of humble circumstances which is an interesting word. It's a word that can refer to someone's attitude, and you know, an attitude of lowliness, an attitude or mindset of humility. It can refer to that, but primarily it refers to someone who is of low social status, who is disregarded of no account in society's eyes. In the Septuagint, that's the Greek Old Testament, it, it depicts a person who is of little significance when evaluated by the world. In fact, not only are they of little significance, but they may even be actively oppressed. Now here, the brother of humble circumstances is set in contrast to the brother of riches. So quite literally here, we're talking about a contrast, not just of someone who's of low social status, who's overlooked, who's, who's not, uh, not important in the eyes of society, but someone who does, in fact, qualify as someone poor economically, someone of little financial wealth and means. And it says this person who finds themselves in this situation, rather than being marked by a, a moodiness, a, a despair, rather than being marked by a complaint, they are to be marked by, it says, is to boast, is to boast, or is to, what the word means, is to internally feel such joy at, 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 at the state of something, that it explodes out into external bragging. That they are to internally, in the midst of their humble circumstances, they are to feel such deep and resounding joy that it explodes out, and it is something they declare that they are proud of. Well, what is it? It says they are to boast in their high position their position of loftiness, of high status. These who are, are, are brothers of, these who are believers, brothers and sisters of humble circumstances, who are overlooked by society, who are low on the social totem pole, they are to boast in their high status. Well, what is the high status? Well, one, the high status is, as we've seen, it's only available to those in Christ. So this is not a statement by James to say, if, if you are a person of humble means, you boast in your high status. This is not a statement to say, well, if I am a person who has absolutely nothing and a fumble means, then I… No, it says if you are 
specifically the child of God who finds yourself of humble means, of humble circumstances, of low status. You are to boast in the high position. It's only available, this position, to the child of God. Well, what is the position? Well, let me be clear what the position is not, church family. The position is not the position of being poor. As though somehow, because someone is poor, therefore they are greater than all. Now, to be clear, Jesus says the poor in spirit inherit the earth, not the rich. Jesus came to save anyone who would respond, but he specifically showed up and proclaimed the gospel to the poor first. He's likely to have grown up in a poor family. In his preaching, we find that there's not a prohibition against wealth or riches, but that there is a a real danger those who possess wealth face to depend and seek those things that those without find have a much more realistic picture of life and an ability to depend upon God and know happiness. But the status is not that of their earthly status. The status, their high and lofty position, is that position of being in Christ. That those, those brothers and sisters of humble circumstances, they are to glory, to boast, to inwardly feel deeply and glad and to resound with bragging their position in Christ. Well, what is their position? Oh, church family, just listen to this. This is, even, this is a list that barely scratches the surface. Ephesians chapter 1 says that we, are, we have been seated permanently in the heavenly places. We've not just been seated, but Christ has given us every spiritual blessing. What position do, does one have? We have a position where every spiritual blessing, everything that could be given as a blessing under heaven, it's already been given to the child of God in Christ. Not only that, but it says we are adopted as sons and daughters. We're not just brought in as more help for the Lord or worker ants. We're adopted as children. And by the way, when you were adopted in first century society, you could disinherit a biological child, but once you adopted a child, they were forever yours and you could not unadopt them. We possess an eternal inheritance, according to 1 Peter, that does not fade, is, is undefiled, but is, but is something that is stored up and protected for us. Ephesians 3 says that we can know the height, depth, breadth, and width. Paul prays that we would know what is the magnitude of his love and an understanding, the magnitude of God's love towards us, that we would be filled with his fullness. Romans 8 tells us that that same love which we can experience as a child of God, we can never be separated from, no matter what forces arise to separate. That same passage in Romans 8 says we are more than conquerors. It says in Psalm 139 that God thinks about us. We are on His mind, not just as creation and image bearers, but as His sons and daughters. We are on His mind more than the grains of sand on the sea. And I believe I've shared in here before, if you want to do the math of how many grains of sand are on earth and factor that by the time, it means that God is thinking of you something like 900 billion times per second. Matthew 6 says that He knows what we need and He provides. Luke 6 says He knows everything there is to know about us, including the numbers of hair in our head, which, understand, church family, that number is constantly changing. Especially at my house, where we find strings of hair everywhere. It says in 2 Chronicles that God's eyes literally scour the earth, searching for the heart that is truly His to greatly aid 
This is barely a scratch in the surface of the list, but all of these things are things that, that we have as children of God that are all part of our high and lofty, our high and lofty status. As one theologian stated it, they may be financially poor, they may be looked down on by the world, they may be considered a nobody. But in the eyes of God, the believer has a position of lofty dignity. Instead of resenting their poverty and being discontented with their obscurity, let them remember they are sons and daughters of the King, prince and princesses of the Most High. It says that the brother of humble circumstances, they are to boast, to glory, to, to feel deeply that as, as they face circumstances of hardship, of trial, as they face circumstances where it's challenging to live beyond paycheck to paycheck, if they get their paycheck, to put food on the table, to find proper medicine as they face real challenges. They are not to become discouraged and despaired, but they are to boast from the position that they have in Christ, understanding that Christ will reward their faithfulness, and if His eye is on the sparrow, it is so much more on His children. Now, let's be careful for a moment, church family, before we move forward. In this verse and what it teaches should not be used to do one of two things. It should not be used in some kind of over-spiritual way where we go, well, if, if God's eye is upon those of humble circumstances, then it's wrong for someone to ever seek to get out of humble circumstances. I knew somebody in college who was, needed a, a, a better-paying summer job just for financial purposes. A door opened for a camp. They offered uh, this person a higher-paying job, and uh, they said no because because they, they, they wanted the higher paying job and they made it this real spiritual thing and instead of just going, you literally prayed for a higher paying job because there was a need, God provided you a higher paying job. Yes. This isn't saying that someone can't get out of humble circumstances. This isn't saying that we should just all voluntarily, uh, you know, let's just live as, as poor as possible. It's not saying that. It's also not saying that when we find situations where there is real injustice, whether it's in our family, in our, in our job, in our community, in our society, where there is real economic injustice that we just go, ah, God says boast in your high position if you're of humble circumstances, let's just do nothing. Now understand, church family, read, and we've been doing it on Wednesday nights. In the Old Testament, God takes the economic injustice His people do and commit so serious, it's part of what brings upon both the Assyrian destruction and the Babylonian exile. So what this is saying is that if you find yourself of humble circumstances, that, that in the midst of that, as you face the trial and temptation to despair, to complain, to give up, to, to fall down, that you are to feel joy at the position you have in Christ, and it is to overflow in boasting. And vice versa, to, to the rich man. And, and there's questions about, is this rich man, is this just, is this a lost person who's rich, or is this... But in the, in the construction in the Greek, the simplest understanding, we borrow both the verb and the subject, which is the rich brother. Talking about inside of the church, there are those of little means, there are those of great means. And to the one of great means, they are likewise, they are to glory, they are to boast, they are to have this deep inward sense of joy, this inward sense of excitement that overflows externally and verbally, they are to do so in their humiliation. What a strange, seemingly upside-down statement that the person who, who has been blessed 
And understand that could be financially, that could be socially. There's a lot of different ways you can quantify and calculate richness. The way that riches would have been back then is different today. You probably don't measure your financial status based on how many goats and sheep you own. Maybe one or two of you. There's different ways to calculate what riches are, but to the person who possesses riches, they are to glory. To the, the follower of Christ that possesses riches, they are to glory in their humiliation, a word that means to lower one's status or estimation. It seems that this humiliation, what is it? It could be something physical. It could be, uh, for instance, it's a word that could be used to describe the loss of one's riches, but it's in contrast to the glorying in one's high status, meaning it's likely here at minimum something of a spiritual nature because you can have the rug pulled out from underneath you and lose everything but not be changed at all spiritually before God. But this speaks of something of a spiritual nature. To boast in one's humiliation means, church family, that those of us who have are not to stake stock. We are not to find security in the possessions and wealth we enjoy. It means we are, we are to understand and see and recognize that everything this world considers rich, everything the world could evaluate us on, financial status, personality, job, uh, job status, rank in job status, class ranking, whatever those things are, that we understand when it comes before Christ, none of those things matter at all. And you can possess all of this list over here, brother of rich means, in contrast to the relatively nothing list in society to the brother of humble means, and before God, he sees both equally, and neither one give a greater standing before the throne of God. In fact, all, no matter rich or poor, are bowed equally before the cross. And it says, for the one who has, that the one who has, they are to glory in this, this equality, they are to glory in this humiliation. They are to become disillusioned with the ground of glorying and all these things that they have acquired and earned and possessed, and instead find a greater glory boasting in the fact that none of those things matter. All that matters is knowing Christ. In fact, this is exactly what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, let him who boasts boast of this, that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, that steadfast covenant love, justice and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. And why is why is the rich one to, to boast in this? And it provides this example, because like the flowering grass, he will pass away. The sun rises with a scorching wind. We don't know anything about that here. <laughs> this example ought to be easy to see. If, like us, you didn't realize that something triggered on the sprinkler dill and your sprinkler didn't run for five months, you very much see it. But the illustration describes the sun coming up, a scorching heat coming out, and the, the, the fields filled with these beautiful wild flowers that, remember, Jesus describes the fields of flowers. Their glory is a greater glory than the wealth of Solomon. 
So on a biblical perspective, the glory of these fields of flowers that rise up is, is greater, more beautiful, more spectacular, more splendorous than all the wealth of Solomon, who by all we know is the most wealthy individual in the history of the world. And he says that not even the beauty and splendor of those flowers is secure against the scorching wind the scorching heat, the scorching wind that comes as the sun rises, and so too, and just as those flowers are lost and destroyed, so too will the rich man, in the midst of the busyness of their pursuit, as they busily go about, going about all that their riches have brought, as they busily go about maintaining that list of status, as they busily go about all of these things and temptations that riches bring, so too they will discover that those riches can be gone in an instant, that you cannot take them to the other side, and death comes to all. And when you stand before Christ, you will not stand with the list of what you've achieved in the world's eyes. You will stand before Christ on the basis of whether or not you have been faithful to Christ if you are in Christ. This is what he says. He provides this. It's Command is both to the same, to boast. Whether you find yourself in either circumstance, you are to boast. And, and, and where are you to boast? What are you to take in that boast? The reality is, church family, that just like these believers, we all face what we could call the trial of poverty or prosperity and, 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 or poorness and riches. We, we all face the reality that some find ourselves in humble circumstances. Some find ourselves in rich circumstances. And we understand that Paul, we saw it in Philippians, he says he knows how to abound, he knows how to have nothing, and he knows how to be content in either. So how do we do that? How, how do we respond when we face this? While in the trial of poverty, understand, church family, and, and I use poverty lightly because majority of us in this room, if we consider ourselves poor, we, we are not anywhere close to what true poverty is. Now, there may be a person or two in here who is close, and I don't mean to belittle that either. When we face with the trial of having not, we are faced with the temptation and the danger of complaint. There's a danger, humanly speaking, when we look around and go, look, look at what I don't have. Well, why can't I make that salary and get that? Or, or why don't I have access to that status? I've put the time in. I'm just as smart as that person in the class, but they get the professor or the teacher's favor. I, I put in just as much hard work as that athlete, if not more, yet they get the starting nod. I put in just as much work for the boss, but they get. We can complain. We can grow frustrated. We can complain monetarily. We can complain socially. We can, in this day and age, we can revolt against the overlords. How, how dare I be wronged? In fact, here's what I'm going to do with it. You're the one wronging me, and I'm going to come after you in whatever violent, slanderous means I can. There's a danger that we can become filled with some kind of a self-pity when we look down on our lot in life. There's a danger that we can become filled with despair and hopelessness. God, did you forget me? There's no hope. What must be? And, and James says in the midst of this church family that if we find ourselves in the face of that trial, what we must do is boast in our position of exaltation in Christ. It's a present tense verb, church family which means this boasting and the high standing of our position in Christ is to be something that marks our life at all times. It is to be carried out and re-carried out day after day, moment by moment. So when, if I am, if I am that student in school and I'm facing some frustration, I, I, I'm, I'm the have-not and I can't get seen and I, what am I to do? Am I to become all wrapped up in what I have not? No, I am to 
take that before the Lord, certainly, but I am to remember the position I have in Christ. That though my coach or my teacher or my peers may not look to me, God certainly sees me. That whether I am an adult and I find myself in a situation where I am constantly overlooked, where I have faced even real wrongs in the job, in the world, this is not introducing a passivity where none of those things can be dealt with. There's right ways to deal with those things. But in the midst of that, rather than becoming fixated and woe is me, I, I look and I remember who am I in Christ? Who has Christ made me to be? And I exult in the fact that though this world may look past me always, God looked down and saw me when I was his enemy and he sent his son to become my sin and take my place. And now that I have been saved by Christ, He doesn't look past me. Instead, He looks at me eye to eye. And I understand what this means, church family. For the, for the early church, it meant boasting in Christ when living paycheck to paycheck. It meant boasting in Christ when being unjustly defrauded of money. It meant boasting in Christ when lacking funds for good food or proper medicine. It meant boasting in Christ, though experiencing the mockery and injustice of the world. And it will mean the same for us. That our lives are to be marked by a daily lifestyle where there is an overflow of joy that it leads us to declare how blessed we are for the status we have in Christ. But you must be in Christ to have that status. And if you're in Christ, you better know His Word so you know what you have in that status. And it's going to mean as we do that, it may mean that we have to change our views of ourselves, of others, of what success is, and even of who we think God is. What do I mean by that? It may mean that our view of ourself has to change. Remember, Christ does not look externally. Christ, uh, God told Samuel when he went through all the sons of Jesse, he went through all the sons, and, and some of them looked great. They looked kings. They sounded like kings. And God said, no, none of them. Instead, ask him where the other son is. And he made this statement, I do not look as man looks, but I look at the heart. It may mean changing views of ourselves. Our value is not in achieving or being seen or being recognized it's in the fact that being by nature children of wrath, the king sought to see us and save us. It changes our view of others. The value of others is not based on what they can achieve or what they can do or how they can add to me. It's on Christ's heart and value for them. It impacts our view of success. Success is, is not what the world sees as success. It's not this list of how much money, of what kind of house, of what kind of car, of what kind of status, of whatever things we can fill this list with. This isn't success. Success is what Christ rewards for eternity. Success is living the life that when you stand before Christ as his child and the, your life is laid on the altar as it's pictured in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that when your life is laid on the altar, it will be laid up there with gold, silver, and precious jewels that are refined by his fire to greater reward and not a life lived with wood, hay, and straw that will be consumed by the fire to loss. It means we must change our view even of God. Understand, church family, God delights, God loves to use the world's nobodies. The world, advocate, the world looks and goes, ah, you're, you're, you're a brother of humble circumstances. God, God must not be as pleased with you. God must not have blessed you as much. You're, you, you can't really do anything yet. Paul writes the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, and he says, the Lord chooses to weak the, use the weak to shame the strong. The foolish to shame the wise. 
He uses the base things, those who are not to shame. And, and he tells them, how many of you are wise? How many of you are noble? How many of you are, listen, God is not looking for somebodies in the eyes of the world. He's looking for people who are willing to be nobodies in the eyes of the world to be his somebody. And in Christ, nobody is a nobody in Christ. Everybody is somebody to Christ. It's going to mean we have to deal face to face with what's ripped through our country at times, which is the prosperity gospel. Let me be clear, church family, there is no passage in Scripture where God promises any individual health, wealth, and prosperity this side of heaven as it concerns you and I as New Testament believers. Riches are not a sign of God's blessing any more than power or might. God can absolutely give them. They can be a part of God's blessing. But you can also gain riches and power and might in ways that God doesn't bless at all. So I want to be clear. God can give. Riches aren't a sign that you've done something wrong. But we need to be really clear that we don't evaluate and look, and this will come up in later passages, so I don't, I'm not going to expand on it today, that we don't evaluate, well, God's really blessed that person because look at, look at, how, look at their list of achievements. Maybe. Maybe not. Instead, we should look to the heart. It means we're going to have to change views. But here's the reality, church family. Most of us, when we come to this passage, there's a temptation. It'd be very easy for us to read this passage and go, oh, wow, I really identify. Brother of humble means. I, I'm not anybody big on society's radar. I'm not, I'm not anybody major. I've experienced some things, and, and I'm here. But, but just for a moment, if you will, church family, I, I want to just bring out some facts because just like there's a trial of having nothing, there is a trial of prosperity where there is a temptation and a danger to self-security and to vain pursuit. Listen to some of these stats. The median income in America is $72,000 this year. It's the median income, which means the majority of Americans will fall in the top 10% of the richest people in the world, though our perception is that we're only in the top 37%. If you make the median income, you are in the top 0.17% of wealthiest individuals in the world. By the way, our government doesn't share this opinion. They say that you only are rich if you make more than $400,000. But what do they know? The global median income is only $10,000 a year for a household. The average individual in the world brings in only $2,100 a year. In our country, we have more millionaires than any other nation, 41%. The second nation is China. They only have 8% of the world's millionaires. Ten years ago, the average American spent over $2,500 on entertainment alone. That's more than the average person in the world makes. We spend $646 billion on recreation today. Not only do we have the money to spend, we also have the time to spend. On average, an American gets five and a half hours of free time a day that they will spend the majority of watching television. It's the most popular leisure activity. We'll spend $103.6 billion on pets, which has doubled in the past decade. Meanwhile, two billion people lack access to safe drinking water at their home in the world. Three and a half billion people, almost half the world's population, don't have access to proper sanitation in their homes. It means a running toilet, trash cans. 2.3 billion people lack basic things like soap and water, and it would only take $175 billion a year for the next 20 years to eradicate global poverty. 
I give you those facts to simply say the overwhelming majority of us in this room need to understand we're not in the category of verse 9. We're in the category of verse 10. If you have a house over your head, a working car, running water that's safe to drink, food on the table, running toilets, you are in the top percentage of wealthy, not just in the world today, but in history. We are the rich brothers, most of us. We are the ones who face not the trial of not having, but the trial of having and the temptations that it brings, the danger of pursuit to gain more. I've gotten some. I've got to get that next thing. I have, man, my iPhone's the Model 10. They came out with 14. We've got to up it to the 14, even though the 10 works. We sell our souls for these things. Oh, we got a student. All right, student. Okay, we're going to start your path by sixth grade. You've got to have a pretty good idea what you want to major in for college and do for the rest of your life. Even though the stats say what you major in in college, you're not actually going to do for the rest of your life. But you better know in sixth grade. And to help you know in sixth grade, we're going to make sure that you go to school and have activities from 6 a.m. to 10 o'clock p.m. And if you don't have all these things on your resume, you're not going to get into a great college to make a six-figure job to have a successful life. And all of a sudden, here I find myself as a student pastor, finding students who never have time to seek the Lord. And unlike my day where we wasted some time in their day, I said, well, walk me through your schedule. And I go, holy smokes, you don't have any time to seek the Lord. Because mom and dad and the school guidance counselor have said, you got to have this resume or you won't be anything which is such a lie. We do it as adults. We'll sell out workaholism. I'm going to work hard. I got to work. I got to work. Listen, working hard is biblical. Worshiping work is not. Working hard and being faithful in a job to provide for your family is biblical. Selling out your family and never having time for them because all you are doing is chasing that next dime so you can have that next thing, so you can go on that next trip, that's workaholism. And church family, understand, we face these dangers. People pleasing for the perks. I know where Christ stands on stuff, but I'm going to find a way. Ah, man, I gotta, that person's got to like me because if that person likes me, it gets this promotion and it moves here. Church family, this is what we face, the majority of us. In fact, some of the things that make us feel poor because we lack in reality, the fact that we think we're poor because we lack them, shows that compared to the world, we're rich. Church family, we, I, I say all this to say because if we're not careful, we'll go, I need to boast in my position in Christ, and absolutely we do. But there's a lot of us who, without realizing it, think we're boasting in Christ when the reality is the reason we feel secure is because of what's sitting in our bank account. The reason we feel like we are successful is because of the resume that would be given. The reason that we feel like we've achieved something is because all of these stats that go behind us. In reality, we need to boast in our humiliation before Christ. We need to repent of seeking success at the world's cost. We need to understand that we are all bowed down before the throne. It is God who is our provider, not us. It is God who is worthy of our worship, not work. It is God who is our deliverer. It is God who is our hope, and He demands all our life. We are not called to run hard after this world. We are called to run hard after Christ while in this world. We are not to busy ourselves with the pursuit of worldly achievements, but we are to busy ourselves with the pursuit of loving Christ and His mission. 
We are called not to boast in our riches, but to steward the riches that God gives us for his eternal purposes. Because James will say in a moment, every good and perfect gift comes from above. Which means wherever you find yourself, of humble circumstance, of rich circumstance, if you're in the rich circumstance, if God has allowed you in your life to achieve a resume that the world would be proud of, we're not saying that's wrong. What we are saying is recognize that was God who allowed it, and it matters not in your standing before the Lord. So boast that you are before the Lord and not in what He has allowed. As we've walked through the Old Testament church family, this is the exact same thing we've seen. As you look at the kings of Judah, there's some good kings in there. Asa, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, all of them start well. All of them never, they will end their life not bowing down to false gods. And they will all finish poorly because they became prideful and boastful of their success, of their wisdom, of their riches. And they ignored being completely dependent upon the Lord. And you can go back and look. If you haven't been on Wednesday night, you can go back and pull it up and listen. You can read it for yourself there in Kings and Chronicles. And God took their self-reliance. God took their self-security. God took their vain pursuit of their own wealth and riches as they were willing to make alliances that compromised the integrity of the nation. God took those things serious, and so He does in our lives as well. Church family, we will one day stand before the Lord as sons and daughters and give account for the life that we lived in Christ. Will our pursuits be found to be stewards of His riches, stewards of the time that He's given us? Or like the rich man, will we be found so busy pursuing all the different things of the world, chasing after all our biggest dreams and wildest fantasies, unaware that it doesn't matter if you're of humble circumstance or plentiful circumstance, the sun comes out and the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God, which we see today, stands forever. May we pay attention and heed the warning today that we would be a church family, that we would be a people not marked by dependence upon ourselves, but who boast in our position in Christ and glory in the fact that we are bowed prostrate before His throne, and that is our only hope. Because then we'll be the church family that God uses to echo into eternity for His glory as we faithfully go about His will here. Let's pray. Father, this is, I realize, anytime the words church and money or wealth are brought up, there's, for many of us, there, it, it's just uncomfortable. There's a lot of bad things that have been done in the name of both those things. Lord, the reality is every, most of us in this room by, by the standards of the facts, we, we qualify as those of, of great gain. Father, may we not be guilty chasing the temptations those riches bring and miss who you are and what you have placed us here for such a time as this to do as individuals and as a church family. 
And Father, for those in the room who really do struggle, they are the one of, of humble means. They are the one who are overlooked. They have, been, they have experienced injustice. They are there. Lord, may they, in the midst of those things, in the midst of, of facing those things, may they understand that before you. They are not facing those things because you have forgotten them or cast them off or overlooked them. God, there are hard truths in Scripture, and the reality is we live in a broken world, and sometimes we really do feel the sting of that brokenness. But Lord, because your eyes are on us, because you are who you are and you are true to your word, one day the, will, the sun does come out, the grass withers and the flower fades, but there will also be a day, Lord, where the clouds part and the trumpet blares, where you descend and you set all things right. And we will see, Lord, that just as your eye is on the sparrow, so your eye has never in any way not been on us as your children. So, Lord, may we respond to you in faithfulness, whatever that means. May we be people who boast, not in our wisdom, not in our might, not in our riches, but people who boast that we know and understand you and you alone. It's in your name we pray, Jesus.